from WHQR Public Media, this is The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for joining us. On today's show, my colleagues and the WHQR Newsroom and I are looking back over the last year and ahead to what's next. For Kelly Kinoyer, that means digging deep into housing and homelessness, but also spearheading not one but two public engagement campaigns to help connect our newsroom to the real world and inspire better reporting. For Rachel Keith, that's meant covering education and the politics at Cape Fear Community College and the New Hanover County School Board, but also digging into the psychology of adverse childhood experiences, a theory that undergirds some really positive work being done to help our region's most vulnerable students. For Nikolai Mather, it's meant taking WHQR's coverage into rural areas around Wilmington, sometimes into news deserts where he's the only reporter. But he's no parachute journalist, and he's been working hard to build relationships, not just grab a scoop and leave. And for Camille Mojica, it's meant looking more closely at what happens when children enter state-run systems for mental health or criminal justice, and running a weekly podcast that's been taking listeners behind the scenes of the WHQR newsroom and the stories we're working on. First up is my colleague, Kelly Kinoyer. Kelly, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Okay, so you have had quite a year. You've done a ton of reporting. A lot of it has centered around housing, whether that's affordable housing or the unhoused. So give me a sense, looking back over the year, you know, what what of these stories have stuck with you? Well, I mean, for me, it's clear that homelessness and housing are very closely tied. We've seen that the housing market has continued to be out of reach for a lot of people. Um, the average age of home buyers in this county is higher than in almost any other county in the United States. It's unusually high. Um, we've seen rents continuing to rise and remain unaffordable. Um, the city has made some investments into affordable housing, two and a half million dollars. Uh, looking back through my bylines for the year, I saw those little spots of hope and a lot of really tough stuff going on too. Um, opposition to housing first policy from members of city council. And of course, ongoing changes in this county on political views towards the homeless, leading to a tighter and tighter uh, environment for homeless people in this community. And some of that has taken the form of the county's recently updated policy that you know forbids people from sleeping on county-owned properties. This is really all centered around the congregation of unhoused people at the library and on that block. And over the year, you've sort of traced the domino effect of passing that policy. Yeah, I mean, I think that we can also kind of tie this back to the Salvation Army shelter closing. When that shelter closed, it really limited the availability of downtown shelter beds in this community, which meant that suddenly there were a lot more people congregating in public spaces to sleep. And that led to this increase in people camping out at the library. The county reacted by banning them from staying there, and then people started keeping an eye out for where they went, which meant a lot of people ended up calling the police on that encampment at MLK and Carr and other encampments across the city. We did see that eventually, after that ban passed on the library, Wilmington Police Department managed to uh, enforce trespassing bans on the MLK and Carr encampment as well. So we're seeing the ongoing pressure for unhoused individuals to move from place to place within this county, within this region, without a clear sense of where they're supposed to or able to go, given that there's less shelter space than there's been here in years. One of the things your reporting and some of our community events have helped unpack is this idea about 
why we are seeing homeless people in downtown Wilmington. Now, we've certainly, you know, we've read emails to the city and the county. We know this is a legitimate concern for downtown business owners, for residents. But there's often this conflation of mental health issues, substance abuse issues, and homelessness that paints kind of a one-dimensional portrait of the people who are homeless. And your reporting angle kind of looked at this, like you said, as kind of part of the overall housing problem in our region. Yeah, it's not necessarily. So there is correlation, right? If somebody is mentally ill or if somebody is addicted to drugs, unfortunately, they are more likely to end up being homeless. But that does not mean that homelessness increases because of those issues. Expensive housing is what increases homelessness. And we've seen this in different communities across the country. Places where housing is inexpensive tend to have lower rates of homelessness. And places where housing is very expensive have higher rates of homelessness. That's why we've seen this increase in this region, because rents have gone up 60 percent in five years. As much as mental health treatment and drug addiction treatment can help people get back on their feet, if the fundamental problem of their life is instability because of housing insecurity, those treatment programs might not actually help them get there if rent continues to be $1,200 a month on average or higher. Which leads me to what you mentioned about housing first policy. And this is a, a huge, complicated topic. We could do a whole newsroom about it. But for people who didn't catch that in your reporting earlier this year, what is kind of the debate there? Well, Housing First is now a federally sanctioned program. It's what the federal government says we should be putting housing dollars into. The idea is that it's hard to address the problems that somebody has in their life unless they're stabilized through Housing First. So before you force them to become sober, before you deal with mental health issues, you get them into stable housing, and then you try and get them in jo a job, and then you try and get them off of drugs. So you give them the fundamental baseline needs met, and then you try and move on from there. In this community, one of the things that advocates talk about a lot is permanent supportive housing, which is housing first, plus support, trying to help people deal with the problems of their lives, and making it permanent so you never have to move out. Uh, what I've seen from my research is that if it's just supportive housing, maybe 24% of homeless individuals manage to stay housed after the program an ends, say they stay for two years. But if it's permanent supportive housing, it's upwards of 80 or 90% of people who stay housed. So if you make it permanent, if you never expect them to leave and transition to something else, you are making sure that that is another person off the streets forever. And for a lot of these folks who we're talking about who have disabilities, maybe they have chronic, severe mental illness, that's not something they would ever be able to manage on their own. So permanent supportive housing is the least expensive and most effective way of helping stabilize them. And it gives them the highest quality of life that's possible for them instead of being in and out of jail in the emergency room over and over. And I will note that there are definitely critics of permanent supporting housing and housing first policies, but we haven't seen the same level of data-driven studies on the opposite side. The argument seems to be almost a moralistic argument about, you know, helping people who are still, you know, uh, abusing drugs or haven't done enough to better themselves. You did mention there is a silver lining here. There was some good news this year. Well, one of the things that was cheerful for us to witness, two actually, I'll say, uh, Eden Village opened. That's a it's similar to permanent supportive housing. It's supposed to be permanent. It's not exactly the housing first model that you see through the federal government, not those outlined proposals. But we've seen 30 people 
end up housed who were previously in the streets for at least a year. So chronically unhoused individuals, they're mostly seniors. These are people who are in dire, dire straits, and now they have a place to live permanently, which is amazing. Um, We also saw the opening of a day shelter downtown, which is phenomenal. Those resources were not previously available. And so twice a week, there's a place for people to go in, get some coffee, get access to computers when they might not be able to otherwise. Um, So that's been a really nice thing to see. And the community continues to support the warming shelter, of course, as well. Uh, I will say those two things, while they're great steps forward, do not come close to meeting the entire need of the homeless community. We have seen that for sure. And we should know that Eden Village does have some requirements of the people who live there. Uh, They do have to pay some rent. There are restrictions on drug use, I believe. And so that did seem to be sort of a compromise for some people who were, for whatever reasons, uncomfortable with straight ahead permanent supportive housing. It's also interesting, though, that Eden Village got a lot of support from local government. And often we do see uh, the nonprofit sector or, or the religious world dealing with this on their own. A lot of shelters are in churches or mosques or temples. And in this case, a lot of candidates, Republicans or Democrats, both said this is a good way for the government to help this crisis. And I don't think every candidate feels that way. Certainly during our election coverage, we saw some candidates who said this simply is not the government's problem. And some people said it is our problem and this is a great way of handling it. Yeah, that's true. Um, I do think that there's a little bit of the the new kid on the block shine for Eden Village. Um, I think that plenty of public officials support our other very valuable shelter systems, including Good Shepherd Center, which has permanent supportive housing as well. I know that our public officials love those nonprofits as well. Um, But Eden Village is new in this community and they opened this year. So I think a lot of people are looking at them in the news and going, this is an exciting new model. I want to tout this and maybe we can recreate this other places. So we've had a lot of public events this year, whether that's our election forums or our uh, Cape Fear conversations. You've had a lead role in a lot of that. So help people understand what you were doing with the other half of your 150 percent of your time. Uh, Yes, Uh, it's been great. I mean, Cape Fear Conversations was our idea to take some of the conversations we have on the air to a live forum, bring the experts out and ask them questions from the audience, questions from reporters on a panel, basically getting all of the experts in one place to discuss the problems that come up in our community. So uh, the first one we did was on DEI, kind of what the controversies are there and how it actually works. The next one in June we did on the LGBTQ community, which was very fun. I got to moderate that one. And then we did one on homelessness in the fall, which was really tremendous, kind of heartbreaking sometimes, but also really, really valuable. And we got amazing questions from the audience on that one um, because there's so much misunderstanding about homelessness. The experts, the people who are advocates, they're dealing with it every single day. So they kind of forget what regular people don't know. And it was really interesting to see them answering those questions live in front of an audience. Yeah. And we had candidates for Wilmington City Council show up. We had community members show up. We had experts show up just to be part of that conversation. So it was a good cross section of of our community and also like a good turnout. And we served beer, which didn't hurt. Yeah, that always helps. And I'm really excited to keep doing these quarterly. The next one we have on the docket is development, which, as I mentioned, is very closely tied to homelessness as we look at the housing crisis moving forward. So keep an eye out for that one. Maybe come in live and see it yourself in person. We'll have some really interesting guests, I'm sure. Okay, before I let you go, I got to talk about the last hat that you wore this year, which was our community agenda. 
Yes. Ooh, that was my entire summer. It was so cool, though. Um, we asked everybody in the community that we could find what they thought we should have the candidates talk about as they compete for votes. And we got a thousand responses from members of the community. It almost accurately represented people demographically as closely as we could get it. And it was just phenomenal to see where the candidates were right and where they were wrong about what people actually cared about and were interested in. The top issues were homelessness and development and affordable housing, infrastructure and traffic. Those were the top five. And so we dug in really deep on each of those issues. And it was transformative for our newsroom, or at least for me. Yeah, and I think a lot of newsrooms around the state are starting to think about this approach instead of letting the politicians set the agenda or even letting reporters and journalists set the agenda is actually going into the public and trying to get some kind of data-driven sense. What are people really concerned about? And then reporting the heck out of it. Yeah. I mean, the most interesting part of it for me is when we held our candidate forum um, and interviewed the candidates live in front of an audience about these issues, we focused it on the top issues from the community agenda, which cut out crime because that wasn't very high on the list for most of the residents that we talked to. So we didn't get to talk to them very much about crime, even though that was an issue a lot of the candidates were interested in pressing on. We got to kind of change the narrative around what the election was about because they were wrong about what their citizens wanted to talk about. And it's worth noting that almost every candidate said they thought the Wilmington Police Department was doing a good job. So it let us cut out some noise and get to the root of what people really wanted to see their elected officials get to. And that's because of you. So thank you. Thank you. All right, Kelly Kinoyer, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, we need to take a quick break. But when we come back, we'll be talking with my colleagues, Rachel Keith and Nikolai Mather. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for staying with us. Later on the show, we'll be speaking with my colleagues Nikolai Mather and Camille Mojica. But up now to take a look back at the year 2023 and ahead to next year is my colleague Rachel Keith. Rachel, thanks for being here. Thank you. Okay, so you have had, I think it is safe to say, a hell of a year. Sure. Uh, You've won some awards for your reporting. You've spent countless hours tracking education at the New Hanover County School District, at Cape Fear Community College, and following the Turnaround Task Force, which pulls together a lot of different threads. But to start, I think some of the highest profile reporting you did, but by no means the only reporting you did this year, was around the banning of one book in one class for one teacher. Of course, we're talking about Stamped. So give me a little background on this. Yeah, and eventually that became a district-wide ban for high school students in their classrooms. It is still in the library, is my understanding, and they also said it was temporary, but I haven't heard of additional follow-up to that. For now, it is banned for teaching. So in January, I wrote a story about all of the records I could find about this book. And those were email exchanges between the teacher from Ashley High School, the AP teacher, Kelly Kidwell, and the parent, Katie Gates, who was pushing back against this book being taught in the classroom, even though her daughter did receive an exemption for this assignment, she was able to read something else. So basically my big reporting earlier in the year was following this first step in the potential banning of this book. 
And then that morphed to the district's committee decision on this book. And then that morphed into the larger public hearings in the fall when the parent, Katie Gates, got to the school board to hear her request for this book to not be taught in those district schools. And so following this story, there were a number of arguments against this book. Again, this is a version of Ibram X. Kendi's Stamped from the beginning. Uh, It was done by Jason Reynolds. It's for a younger audience. That ended up being one of the complaints that this didn't have what's called the Lexile score. It's not a mature, complicated enough book for an AP English class. There are questions about how AP syllabi actually get put together. But I can say just as a bystander watching your reporting and other people's reporting and watching these meetings, I think it is safe to say that this was a culture war, that there are elements in this book that are critical of the United States, of the founding fathers, of the Constitution. Um, and it's set into a history of white supremacy and racism and that seemed to be where a lot of the objection came from. And it really felt like Kelly Kidwell was caught in a fight that was much bigger than what she was doing in her classroom. Yeah, and this is what she said to me when I first interviewed her in January of this year. Teachers don't want to be in this war. Like, we're just trying to go in a classroom and do our job. It's a really hard job. And I think most of us understand very fully the gravity of the situation. Like, we have children in front of us and they listen to what we say. We have an element of influence and control that we take seriously. She is saying that, yes, teachers do have influence. And again, she, throughout the reporting, you will see that the argument and that the school district made along with her is that this was a perspective. This was an argument that the AP syllabus, the AP standards do not require a student to take on a specific ideology or a specific way of thinking. But this was a book about the black experience in America throughout time from the founding of the country to present day. And some people took issue with that. Yeah. And I will say, having listened to a lot of people speak at these meetings, some of these arguments did stick more to what was policy or seeking a sense of balance in the material that was presented in the class. But we definitely heard from people who just didn't want to hear about flaws that we know historically existed in the founding of the United States. And that problem is not going away. That conflict is, I expect, to fully to see more of in 2024, especially given, as you have reported on, the Parents' Bill of Rights, which was passed this year, which opens up, as far as I can tell, more avenues for parents to lobby objections to what goes on in schools. All right, moving on to a much calmer situation, the Cape Fear Community College reporting. So last year, you and I both went back and listened to last year's uh, end of year show where we were talking about some of the issues that were going on at Cape Fear Community College. There were issues with what's called FTE, which you have educated me on because I didn't know anything about this. It means full-time equivalency. It's basically like a unit of instruction. I'm paraphrasing here, so don't get mad at me. But it's a unit of instruction that determines how much money the college gets from the state. It's basically like a metric for how much uh, learning is going on, how much educating they're doing. Um, and they get money for that educating. And they get money for that. There were contract buyouts that you were investigating. There was the, oh man, Bloody May, which is basically where contracts are up and get non-renewed. They're sort of annual contractual employees. And so May is a very tense, apprehensive time at the college. And we saw a lot of those issues come back this year. That's right. Yeah, it was just continuation of the same. I mean, we played a clip last year at this time from former board member, board of trustees member, Jimmy Hopkins. He was removed by the former county commissioner, 
chair Julia Olson Bozeman for missing meetings, but our reporting shows that other trustees had missed about the same that Jimmy Hopkins did. And basically it came out that it was attributed to his pushback against the purchase of the Bank of America building for the nursing program. So he had questions and concerns about how that was being purchased. And eventually he was removed, he says, for that. And he said the current board members, he had advice for them to speak up and not remain complacent to kind of push back on the administration on certain decisions that they're making. And so Ray Funderburk III, he also pushed back on Jimmy Hopkins' removal, saying that this looked a little dicey and we need to consult our bylaws. And he pushed back on other issues with the Marine Tech program. He also pushed back on some of Jim Morton's salary raises. And eventually, in March of this year, he was removed by the Board of Trustees. Basically, they claimed that he was pressuring an instructor for a grade change, but it looks like that was not a clear-cut ask. And actually, he has brought a lawsuit forward claiming that they disparaged his reputation and they lied about this issue. So that lawsuit is ongoing right now. But we did get to talk to Ray Funderburk III right after he was removed. And he's talking about one of the issues when he was pushing back on Jimmy Hopkins' removal. And he's talking about in a closed session that they were basically arguing amongst themselves and yelling at him. And they're not supposed to do that. They're supposed to do that in open session. Closed session are only for board members to ask the attorney questions pointedly to that person. They essentially asked me why I was doing this. Why did I want to do something like this? Why did I think my statement that I read to them, why did I think it affected the integrity of the board? And I said, the board has bylaws. And the bylaws say, this is the way you get rid of a trustee. We aren't following this bylaw. And they said, why do you want to bring this up? Some of it was essentially just anger. And I will say that we covered in depth in an entire newsroom on the hearing, effectively a trial of Ray Funderburk. And at the end of the meeting, Chair Bill Cherry presented fresh allegations at the end of this hearing, which, which Funderburk was not really given a chance to address or defend himself for. That is not how a hearing or finding of facts or a, a trial, in effect, should work. And I heard a lot of people call this a show trial, and that's a strong term, but it was really hard to push back on that because this just seemed like a foregone conclusion, and this was a hearing to to go through the motions. But there didn't seem to be any real chance that Funderburk would mount a credible defense and then stay on the board. And, of course, the question we will have for future years is, are we going to see other board members speak out, regardless of what the issue is, or has this effectively sent a message that even if you have concerns, you do not speak out? Because twice now we've seen people removed for that. That is just something we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, and I, I will say that this year, the prior year, they had gutted their FTE department who checks the auditing on that. And one of the first times ever that they had to revert funds back because those auditors were gone and they got fined for it. Essentially, they had to send back the money. And you went to that 
meeting and the trustees didn't bring that up at all. And then later this year, not too long ago, SACS is an accreditation for most Southeastern universities and colleges, and they've put them on warning for issues with their full-time staff and for the way that they rate student achievement. So this is continuing, and we have not heard any pushback at all on any of those issues. And for the record, we should say the college claims they are still totally in compliance. They're framing this more as a paperwork issue. And the college is still accredited. It hasn't lost its accreditation. But clearly something is going on when larger bodies are asking questions or even issuing warnings. All right. So moving on, another thing you spent a lot of time looking at, which has really resonated with the community. This is some of the reporting you won an award for, but I've heard positive comments from the endowment, from the district attorney's office about this. And here, of course, we're talking about ACEs and specifically the turnaround task force, which is looking at ACEs. So these two things kind of work together. Yes. So ACEs is Adverse Childhood Experiences. And there was this seminal study that was done that show that things like poverty and psychological and physical abuse when you're young carries into major issues as an adult. That could be that you can't hold down a job or that eventually you develop an illness, a disease. I mean, these traumatic experiences can spell into something that's very serious. And so Javene Skiba is the new director of the New Hanover County Resiliency Task Force. And this is what she said about this seminal ACE study. A child who's experienced six or more ACEs has a 20-year shorter life expectancy, which when I learned that blew my mind. And that's just from the stress of maybe having a family member or parent incarcerated or having a parent with mental illness or substance abuse in the home or neglect. And I will say part of the ACEs work that I did was, hey, why do we need a resiliency task force? Maybe people don't have ACEs. Well, Javene had something to say about that too. It's not mental weakness. It is really about their biology. And the community resiliency model specifically gets to the heart of that. We all have a nervous system. So that, to me, that's a unifier. So what she's saying there is that we all have stresses in our lives. And people who interact with the public, like teachers or court officials, I mean, they have to be able to work with people who have ACEs, or maybe they have ACEs themselves, and they want to bring down the stress in a situation, try to act calmly, try to help people. Because like we said, our nervous system can get activated with fight, flight, or freeze. And so we have to kind of take a step back and think more logically. ACEs and the Resiliency Task Force, that's not just about a small subset of our population. That's basically what they're saying. It's everyone. It's something that we need to work on with everyone, how they handle stress. And that was actually really important in understanding the work of the Turnaround Task Force, which we'll have plenty of links to reporting on the page. But essentially, this was a task force of not just educators, but people from different fields in the community looking at New Hanover County's lowest performing schools and trying to take a trauma-informed or an ACEs-informed look at these students and these teachers and figure out what was going on. Okay, so before I let you go, You sometimes find solace, I think, in reporting on science, and you've done some great science reporting. You have a sweet spot in your heart 
for marine mammals. I do. And I got to do a continuation of that work this year, which, yes, I get excited about because there are scientists at UNCW right here. I followed, you know, the work of the Marine Mammal Stranding Program. I followed the work of the Coral Reef Lab, and they're trying genetic editing to basically save the world's corals. You occasionally see like a little press release blurb that university sends out, but you do spend the time to go and talk to these people and visit the labs and, and bring us a little more depth. And it's it's fascinating stuff that's going on over there. It is. All right. Before you head out, what is in store for you this coming year? So when we turn the page to 2024, we're going to hit the ground running for the primaries. So the Board of Education has the Republicans have five candidates and the Democrats have four and they have to whittle that down to three seats. So I'm going to start interviewing those candidates, talk about the issues in education that have been going on over the last year and put those to them. And then also we have the continuation of the turnaround task force and the budget negotiation with the school district and the county. All right. Well, Rachel Keith, thanks for being here and thanks for being in our newsroom. Thank you. All right. Up next, as we take a look back at the year 2023 and ahead at next year, is my colleague Nikolai Mather. Nikolai, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Okay. So you are the newest addition to the WHQR newsroom. You come to us through a partnership with Report for America, but tell us a little bit about your background. Where are you coming to Wilmington and WHQR from? So specifically, I'm from Pittsburgh, North Carolina, the bustling metropolis of Chatham County, North Carolina. And I came here because I have a real passion for rural reporting. I think that, you know, growing up in a town that had actually a really sophisticated newspaper for like, you know, a town of like 6,000 people, I really learned the value of having good local journalism. Um, But I don't think I realized growing up as a kid, like how much work goes into that. And I've really realized that, especially here, um, covering what, four different counties, a bunch of different municipalities and all the drama that goes into politics, just politics alone, too. Like that's also my job also goes into like cultural reporting, the arts, environmental stuff. So it's been a lot, but it's been really fun. And I'm really lucky to do it in a supportive newsroom. So one of the things you've been covering since you started here has been you kind of got thrown into the beginning of the 2023 election cycle Mm -hmm. and looking at elections around in rural counties where, I mean, frankly, our newsroom and other newsrooms don't always have the bandwidth to to get in there and look at the races. So what is what has that been like? So my first my very first uh, real full time journalism job, I was covering uh, the Georgia elections in Athens, Georgia. And that was difficult for a lot of reasons, but I think one of the things that made it the most difficult was at the time our newsroom was still reporting remotely. Um, And I was also thrown in like right before the election started, like in the summertime. So I didn't really know most of my colleagues that well, and I didn't really know Georgia politics that well because I'm from North Carolina. Um, And so that was just like a total trial by fire. Covering politics here has been a little bit easier because even though y'all don't necessarily report on, you know, far-flung regions of Columbus County or what have you, like you still have a lot of background on Wilmington. You're able to kind of judge me in there. That being said, though, there is still something very interesting about going out to these towns and being like, yeah, I moved to Wilmington like six months ago or not even six months at the time. It was like two months. Like, tell me everything about politics here. But what I will say is like, you know, people were still just delighted to have a reporter there covering the Quirks. Covering the weird little quirks of their small towns. And I don't know. I, it was very hard, but it was very fun. 
So one of the things that we actually talked about before we hired was your approach to role reporting. And one of your concerns about journalism in general was this kind of, I don't know, patronizing attitude that big city reporters sometimes have when they go out to smaller towns. And you were adamant that you were not going to do that. No, absolutely not. I hate that. Like, I think part of that is motivated by sort of the reactions that would greet me when I would go out into places outside of North Carolina or even like more urban places in North Carolina. And I would talk about my experience growing up in a small town and they'd be like, oh, I bet that was horrible or I bet people are really stupid there. And it's like (laughs) people I don't think folks really understand that proximity to others does not make you smarter, more politically adept or, you know, somehow better. Um, There's a real sense of classism that's rooted in a lot of coverage of these rural areas. And that's not something that I ever want to echo. I think that they treat people from the country as though they're sort of like a character to be acted on rather than characters themselves who are taking part in these big dramas, you know, who can be doing good things or doing bad things, you know. I think that not only serves to ridicule them, but also it kind of makes your story suck. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's I mean, no other way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely I have read reporting, um, you know, by journalists and reporters and essayists from you know The New Yorker or The Atlantic. And sometimes they do a great job. And sometimes there is just this kind of grating sense like they're making a sitcom about the people that they're reporting on. Literally. And it's so frustrating, too, because, like, I think that there's another underexplored aspect to all this, too, is, like, not only do people, like, from these bigger publications parachute in and, like, talk to these people like they're dumb, but they also kind of take our reporting, which is really frustrating. Like, I remember this year, something that really made me mad is I saw, like, and I won't say the publication, but I saw some major publication do a story on country music in Nashville. And as I was looking through and like reading the sources, reading like some of the things that they wrote about people there, I was like, wait a minute. I saw like this one like local reporter that I've been following in Nashville for like five years now do all of these people this year. You know, I think that this is all to say that I think that rural reporters provide a really, really important wealth of information that y'all can all read on your lunch break in The New York Times. I was going (laughs) to say, if you do your job well enough, long enough, you will see your reporting uncredited in The Great Lady. Yep. All right. So the speaking of rural reporting, one of the, I think, most important stories that you've been working on has been what I think is fair to call a mold crisis in Holly Ridge. Now, this is a small town in Onslow County, north of here, where the residents of Holly Plaza, which is a public housing complex, have been pushed out of their homes, had their lives disrupted because the the whole complex is um, infested with mold. I mean, you've reported mushrooms coming out of the wall and and mold down to the studs in some cases. And there's been a really complicated and sometimes conflicting set of narratives to try and unpack here between housing and urban development and the public housing authority, which is the town itself, basically, and what the management company Pendergraph is saying or not saying. And then the stories that you've told from the point of view of the tenants themselves. So what has all this reporting been like? Holly Ridge has been, it has tested the limits of my sanity, honestly. It's been so frustrating and heartbreaking. Um, I really, really have grown to know all the former tenants of Holly Plaza. They've grown to trust me in a way that I honestly didn't ex- like, didn't expect. Because again, I'm a recent transplant. I just moved to Wilmington. Um, But I've just really tried to maintain my relationships with them and, you know, try not only to report out their stories, but 
do my best, like, as a reporter to connect them with resources. Um, you know, my heart really, really breaks for them and their children, especially, like, what they've been going through in the holidays. It's been also, I say, frustrating, like, mind-numbing, because it is so hard at this point in time to sort out who is at fault for what, if anybody is at fault for anything, honestly. There are, we have a narrative going from HUD, we have a narrative going from the USDA, we have a narrative going from the town, we have a narrative going from Pendergraph. And then, of course, we also have all the experiences of the tenants, which sometimes jut up against each other. Um, so managing all of these things, especially when there's like an ongoing federal civil class action suit going on is like, <laughs> it's been very tough. But I've also really, I think this work is really important and I'm going to keep chasing it. Something I've noticed too a lot of times, and I've noticed that ECT has done some coverage now too, but something that I noticed when I first started reporting out on Holly Ridge was I was the only reporter in the room. You know, I showed up to the first town hall meeting uh, back in like mid-October or something like that with my microphone and stuff. And the, like one of the people from the town was like, who are you? Why are you here? I'm like, I'm a reporter. I'm here to report it. And they're like, we don't usually have reporters here. Like it was so, God, anyways, I, I guess what I will say is Holly Ridge has been a really tough story, but I'm glad that I'm doing it. All right. So before I let you go, what are you looking forward to reporting on next year? Well, I can't say that I'm looking forward to reporting on Holly Ridge, but I am going to be reporting on it. Um, I am hoping that we will get a happy ending out of this. Other things that I want to cover next year, I think I would really like to do some more work in Columbus County. I've noticed that the Border Belt Independent has been doing some excellent stories out in that region, and it just seems like there's so much going on right now. Another thing that I'd like to approach more in the new year is covering housing, especially in the coastal areas of the Cape Fear. I think that's a pretty underexplored I don't know, tension going on between people who vacation there and people who actually run the hospitals, run the grocery stores, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, Nikolai Mather, thanks for being here. Yeah. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, we need to take one more quick break. But when we come back, we'll be talking with my colleague Camille Mojica about her experiences this year and what she's looking forward to next year. I'm Ben Shockman. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman. Thanks for staying with us. I'm here now with my colleague, Cami Mojica, all things considered host, reporter, podcaster. Cami, you've had a busy year. I do it all. I really do. <laughs> okay. What are some of your favorite things that you've gotten into this year? Okay. So, my latest series is, I think it's actually my first, like, series that I've done. Like branded series, part one, part two, exactly. part three. Um, it was the series on mental health um, infrastructure here in our region. And it's one of those topics that I'm really interested in, just in general, and I'm very passionate about. But it was super cool that I got to talk to like really heavy hitters in our community that work in that space. Um, you know, speaking to Ryan Estes over at Coastal Horizons. And then I actually get to talk to Kelly Crosby over at NCDHHS, which was super cool because I only ever see her in like those statewide panels that they do. Um, and she was so nice. And I got to speak to CEOs of other LMEMCOs in other parts of North Carolina. And it was just, it was really, really eye-opening. Those are the quasi-governmental organizations that sort of manage federal funding as it comes down to weed the people for mental and behavioral health. Yes. So other state, other counties is trillium 
Yes, exactly. So yeah, that is one of the one of the interesting things about being a reporter is that as an everyday resident, citizen, person about town, you don't really get the opportunity to just call up experts in the field mm-hmm. or people who are actually, you know, the tip of the spear on certain issues and and just talk to them. You might be curious about it, but get away for a journalist to do it for you. Exactly. But when you're a journalist, you can call, you know, someone at the state's health and <laughs> human service department. Press cred. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you also went to the Port City United Second Chance event. I remember you talking a lot about this before and after. Yeah. So number one, just to get this out there, regardless of how you feel about PCU's leadership, how it's been funded, you know, how it was started up, the fact that, you know, so many people came to this event just speaks for itself. They had a table specifically for um, expungement cases with with lawyers that were doing pro bono work. And um, I spoke to Rashad Gaddison while I was there, and he told me 600 people already in the first hour had come for that service where they didn't actually get to see everyone. They had to hand out business cards so that way they could call them back later. And there were just people there, you know, connecting with service providers and different organizations in the community. And it was just really nice to see it. And, you know, speaking to PCU leadership, regardless of, you know, how media trained they may have been at the beginning, they're there to do a job. Their interviews were super to the point succinct and this was work that they're very passionate about so it was really really fun to cover i will say we don't always get the opportunity to get past the elected officials exactly and and the press corps like the pios and the communications people to the people who are actually doing the job yeah and sometimes it can be the press people might be more polished and they might have the more you know radio friendly soundbite ready to go sometimes it's nice to talk to just the people who are just doing the work exactly yeah Okay, so another big topic that you have been following and will still be following is opioid settlement funding. And this is from North Carolina, like the other 49 states, uh, have sued major opioid manufacturers uh, like the Sackler family and distributors, which has turned into a lot of money and a lot of questions about how to use it. Yes. So the county and city actually have a joint task force together um, with different political officials across the aisle. And it's super funny that I think one of people's main gripes with government is like bureaucracy and red tape and people not talking to each other and political lines. But the reason why this is one of my favorite things that I have been covering was sitting in those meetings. You get to just see a group of people really hashing things out, working for the same goal, regardless of whether or not they're Republican, conservative, Democrat, liberal. Everyone in that room wants to make sure that the people who need help get that help. And it was nice to be able to sit in those rooms and then report on it and be like, government actually really does care. And this is a perfect example of everyone coming together, you know? Probably everyone in that room and everyone in similar rooms, you know, whether it's Charlotte Mecklenburg or the Triangle, know someone or know someone who knows someone who has died in the opioid epidemic. And I think that is sobering and that helps cut through the partisan rancor sometimes. Yeah. Okay, so 2023, what did you learn as a journalist? So for me personally, my reporting toward the end of this year started really touching on mental health and the state and well-being of children outside of the schools. Um, Because my colleague, Rachel Keefe, you know, she does a lot of reporting on children in schools and the education system. I was focusing on what their lives are like outside. And it's actually pushed me to want to pursue a legal career um, in juvenile justice and child welfare 
So I think this year has taught me a lot about what I'm passionate about and what I really want to focus on. The work of others in the newsroom has shown me how journalism can cause real change. Um, Nikolai Mather's recent piece on the mold crisis over in Holly Ridge was a perfect example of that. You know, now they have vouchers where they'll be able to have housing for up to a year, which is crazy, right? Um, and being a journalist that has, you know, like your your mind together and not letting your anger get to you when you're covering things that are really sometimes personal to you and other times, you know, contentious meetings, hot button topics, it's getting a lot harder to be able to have your poise, um, but it's getting more and more important to be able to do that, which I think is, whew, <laughs> I think that's something that a lot of journalists um, have had to learn how to do in the past couple years. I don't know. Do you ever have like those cherry tomato moments where you're like, Woo-sa. Oh, yeah. yeah. I can feel the blood pressure <laughs> coming up and I can feel my face getting warm and I can feel I can feel myself getting ready to react mm-hmm. instead of pause and think and process and then ask the right question. Exactly. Instead of just like attack or like <laughs> defend or, yes. you know, like some kind of more base instinct. Yeah. I mean, and it, it coming from just a, a human perspective journalists are humans too. We have feelings, we have opinions. Um, And I think it's important for us to acknowledge that as both journalists and readers, listeners, but also for us to be able to control those emotions. Um, Yeah, that's super important for our, I think, our journalistic integrity. Um, And at the very end, journalism has really taught me that the story is never about me, the journalist, right? It's about the people that I am covering. Um, and even if it's something I'm passionate about, sometimes I can feel myself getting a little too, I don't know, it's not the, the word is not involved, maybe invested from a personal t- standpoint. And I think it, journalism has taught me this year that sometimes you got to step back, you know, take a look at the story from a wider lens. Um, and when you're ready, you can come back to the story with a clearer head in mind, you know, because the story is, it's about the people that I'm reporting on. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. So we introduced you as uh, a reporter and all things considered host, but also a podcaster. Yes. So let's talk about the podcast. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So um, I actually <laughs> I counted. CFR is going to hit episode 67 when we ring in the new year. Woo-hoo. I know. We were on episode 23 in January. So I'm not going to do that math, but that's a lot of episodes <laughs> from the beginning to the end of the year. Um, that's huge, huge progress. Again, this is a project that I've held really dear and getting feedback now from listeners and people in the community about the vibe of the podcast. And, and I like won't make you mood. brag on yourself. I'll, I'll, I will tell people that you've gotten people dig it. They one of the things I've heard is that, you know, it's it's a combination of stories that are in progress, um, recent news, mm-hmm. seeing how the sausage is made and like how reporting gets done. Yeah. Um, but it's it's not as. It's not boring. It's fun. It's a fun show. I like it. I also like it. Yeah. It's... Well, you make it. I'm glad. <laughs> okay. Kami, Mojica, any last thoughts? Yes. I mean, not forever, but you're like for for this episode of the news. <laughs> I room. will no longer be around. <laughs> <laughs> um, unfortunately or fortunately, if 2023 has taught us people in general anything, is that journalism and journalists, the people that make journalism happen, are valuable and absolutely necessary. Um, you know, I don't, I don't want to 
sound like we carry a cross every day as journalists. Um, but I fully believe that the journalists who do this work day in and day out, it's a calling for them. And they get up and willingly get out the door and go to work every day in the face of misinformation, disinformation, pushback, people, you know, not trusting the media. People you know? calling them the enemy of the people. Yeah, I mean, like, that doesn't feel good. But it's a calling and people you know, continue to go out there willingly and do it every day. Um, I think this new age of journalism that we're in and we're going to continue to move into, especially with the rise of AI, ooh, um, I think it's scary. I think it's scary, but I also have hope because I'm working with some awesome people as colleagues in this newsroom. So I, this newsroom is like planting the seed of hope and then it'll just, it'll grow into like a big tree, the tree of hope. I like it. Thank you. All right, Camille Mejica, thank you so much. Thank you. All right, well, that's just about all the time we have for today's show. I have just a few words left to say before we head out of this episode of The Newsroom and this year. First, I want to thank everyone who listened to the show this year. I want to thank all the people who followed our reporting at WHQR. I want to thank all the people who helped us tell these stories. Whether you came in and sat down for an in-studio interview or sent us a tip online, or just pulled us aside at an event and gave us an idea for a story. We know that our reporting starts with the community and your trust in us to tell these stories. So thank you. Second, I want to say it's been a strange year. And I feel like I say that every year, but this year has been no exception. It's also been a strange time in journalism. We've seen major cutbacks at NPR, at newspapers, at public radio stations around the country. WHQR has managed to stay strong, and it has managed to grow, and that is thanks to support from people like you. So again, thank you. I don't know what 2024 has in store for us, but I do know that I have some of the finest colleagues around to face it with. So thank you to Kelly Kinoyer, Rachel Keith, Nikolai Mather, and Camille Mojica. Thanks also to the WHQR technical team, Ken Campbell and Mark Brady. If you missed any part of this show, you can find it at whqr.org or find it as a podcast pretty much everywhere you can find podcasts. If you've got questions or comments or ideas for a new show in the new year, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for listening. And I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom. And until then, Happy New Year.